Hello, and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Alan, on our last couple of podcasts, we've taken an inductive look at Genesis and the Gospel of John. Both books start with the phrase, in the beginning, and open our eyes to a world of God-sized opportunities and possibilities. Today we move through Ecclesiastes, which takes us through what would appear, at first glance anyway, to be a world of despair, hopelessness, and, in its own word, meaninglessness. Actually, um, it's... uh... It's a fascinating little book, and it, it does delve into the whole question of meaning, meaning of life, why are we here, the questions that have been, been asked by human beings since the beginning of time. And Koheleth is going to address all of those questions, and his conclusion is going to be a fascinating one. Hmm. Well, let's begin with the significance of the book of Ecclesiastes. What is its significance in the canon of Scripture? It's a great question. It seems to me, you know, it's a part, first of all, of the wisdom literature. As you know, the Old Testament is divided up into three major component parts. There's the historical books, the wisdom books, and the prophetic books. There are 17 historical books, and there's 17 prophetic books. There are five wisdom books, the books of Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. So it finds its way into the wisdom writings of the Old Testament, uh, mostly poetic in their their formulation, and and ask the profound questions of what is the meaning of of things. In Job, the question, what is the meaning of suffering? In um, Song of Solomon, what is the meaning of love? In Proverbs, the quest for wisdom. In Psalms, the, the quest for relationship and significance. And, and here in the book of Koheleth, the quest for the meaning of life itself. What's the point of life? What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? Where have we come from? Where are we going? Those basic questions that are intrinsic to every person who has ever lived their lives at all, they're all addressed here in this book. And it is an incredible, it's a little book of 12 chapters, but boy, is it powerful. Let me start by asking, why do you refer to this as Koheleth rather than Ecclesiastes? I haven't heard that before. It's interesting. Um, You know, the book is generally known as Ecclesiastes, but it's the wrong title. In the Hebrew, it is called Koheleth. When they were trying to translate it, they didn't know what Koheleth meant. And they thought it came from the word Kohel, uh, which refers to assembly. And so, you know, when they think of an assembly within the context of Scripture, they would think as, as, you know, Christians, they would think in terms of a church, an assembly. And so, hence, it got the name Ecclesiastes, which is really a misnomer. It's nothing to do with an assembly. It's nothing to do with the church. It's, it's nothing to do with, uh, with the ecclesia, if you will. Um, and in fact, should be called by its original name, Koheleth. Now, the, the problem there, of course, is we don't quite know what Koheleth means. Uh, most scholars have suggested it means something like a teacher or preacher um, or an officer of the kahal, an officer of the, of the assembly. Um, but I think because of its nature, it, it could very well be called the philosopher hmm. or, or the preacher or the teacher. I think any of those would be appropriate. So rather than try to get into translating the meaning of the word, we just simply call it by its original name, 
Koheleth. Uh, many times people ascribe the book of Ecclesiastes to Solomon, to King Solomon, but then other people say, no, it's not. Yeah, traditionally, of course, it is attributed to Solomon, uh, simply because right at the very beginning of the book, you might remember, I'm just turning to it now, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, uh, the words of the preacher, um, which, by the way, is the words of Koheleth, yeah. the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, if we take Koheleth to be the designation of who it was, basically we can say, one, he was the son of David, and two, he was king in Jerusalem. Chapter 1, verse 1. So if those are the clues, then obviously Solomon would qualify more than anybody else. And of course, Solomon was the person to whom God granted a great deal of wisdom. Mm -hmm. But my persuasion is that, yeah, I mean, I suspect, strongly suspect it's Solomon. But, you know, really the reason why we should listen to, to Koheleth, whoever he was, is because of his profound experience uh, and perhaps because the experience that he, uh, he speaks about, we resonate with. And perhaps because what he speaks about, you know, resonates in every age. Um, you know, it, it deals with, with the questions of optimism and pessimism, of wisdom and foolishness, of wealth and poverty, of work and leisure, of joy and sadness, of mm -hmm. faith and doubt, of life and death. Um, you know, so I think the compelling thing about this book is not so much who wrote it as to its content, which is really quite amazing. Before we get too far along, let me ask you to give us an overview, an inductive overview of Ecclesiastes. Mm. Well, I think it's kind of interesting that the book is, you know, is held together by, by just 12 chapters. Uh, it's a small book. Koheleth is interested in searching for the meaning of life. And so he goes down so, so many dead-end streets in his exploration, in his search or his quest for, for meaning. And so you have perhaps, you know, in the 12 chapters, you would maybe divide it up into uh, the first two chapters would be the, the quest from experience. Uh, and then he moves into more philosophical quests in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And then he appeals to practical wisdom in chapters 7 and 8, and then faces the stark realities of life in chapters 9 and 10, and then finally begins to reach his conclusions at the, towards the end of the book, and begins that process, I think, in the end of chapter 10 into 11, and its climax in chapter 12. So you have this movement of this constant reiteration, something like 37 times Koheleth says, life does not have any meaning. 37 times mm. in these uh, relatively few chapters. It's an amazing conclusion. So every time he explores a certain avenue, he comes to the conclusion that doesn't make any sense. Life doesn't make any sense. And, and so, you know, one of the great things about Koheleth, as opposed to other pieces of... Uh, of literature, I think, who, who also have attempted to explore the meaning of life, is that, you know, he basically faces the stark realities and keeps saying, it does, this doesn't make sense. And so he moves to another avenue, and this doesn't make sense, and then moves to another avenue. And so, you know, he basically takes all the straw man that people have suggested over the, the, the millennia uh, that have tried to ask, answer the question of what is the meaning of life, and he just simply poohoos it. Um, 
That's a good Irish expression, poo-hoo, you know, just uh, he, he dismisses, he dismisses them and simply says, rubbish, you know, that's what we would say back home, that's rubbish. Um, and so you know, long before he gets to his final conclusion, he's basically dismissed every theory and concept that people have suggested over the, over the, uh, the course of human life. Well, obviously, many, many theories have been offered, um, both, as you said, both philosophical and scientific. Where does this book land as far as solving that riddle? What is the meaning? Well, I think it lands. I'm not going to tell you the meaning yet, but, but you know, um, and it's not a simple, you know, it's not a simple black and white, you know, this is the meaning. Um, because he does go through the experience of life, the philosophy of life, um, explores it all before he gets to his conclusion, which is just amazing. Um, in fact, in many ways, the first 11 chapters uh, basically are, are ways of dismissing all the various theories and ideas. And, and interesting, yeah, you know, I, anytime a preacher has preached on Ecclesiastes, I'm always cringing, you know, as to what he's going to do or what she's going to do with the text because Oftentimes, you know, I've heard sermons on there's a time for every season mm -hmm. uh, in chapter three. And, and somehow, you know, the, the preacher has, uh, the, the sermonizer has, has suggested that, you know, that's God's word to us, that there is a time for every season, a time to love and a time to hate. And I'm thinking, really? A time, you know, a time to, uh, to pick up stones and a time to throw stones. And I'm saying, really? You know, I mean, are you serious? I mean, you're, you're suggesting that as a Christian worldview? Because that would stand in contradiction to New Testament teaching. Rather, he is covering a non-theistic worldview that is totally meaningless. So that life in that particular context of um, there's a time for everything, every season or there's a time for everything under heaven, that what he's doing basically is pointing out the cyclical nature, the meaninglessness of, of nature. You know, we're born, we're dead, we're, we love, we hate, we, we go to war, we go to peace, and so forth and so on. And it's a non-theistic and a non-godly, if you will, worldly view. And yet it's offered often as, as a Christian sermon that this is part and parcel of how we should think. And, and in fact, it's quite the opposite. So, so that would be my concern, you know, for... Um, in understanding this book. It is a, an incredibly powerful, wonderful book, but it takes 11 chapters basically to dismiss the worldly point of view. And only at the very end says, now then, let me suggest, since everything else is bankrupt, all philosophies, all scientific theories, as to meaning of life, why are we here? What is, what is my life for? You know, what what is to become of me? Uh, where have we come from? Where's the human race originated? Um, have we evolved from matter? You know, I mean, all those various ideas finish up in bankruptcy. And Koheleth has the courage to say that. We just, it's totally without meaning. And then when he's dismissed all those, only at the very end of the book, he reaches this climax, which, which helps us then understand where he's come from and the search that has brought him to the, to the finality that he espouses in chapter 12. Is there any little tease in chapter 1 that might um, nod towards the ultimate resolution in 12? 
because it, it seems like uh, it seems very I mean, right from the get go. Right, it from does, the, doesn't out, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It does. Yeah, it does. It seems a very depressing book. Uh, I must confess, um, and and that's why you cannot, you know, you really can't read Kohelas a chapter a day, mm. you know, because <laughs> uh-huh. then then it would be a week and a half. You'd be totally depressed. <laughs> Uh, before you get to the conclusion. Um, so, you know, you, you have to read it as a whole. You have to read all 12 chapters um, to get to where you're going. And yes, you're right. I mean, there are there are flickers of light, of, of little clues that that help us, you know, I mean, it's kind of like we walk through a dark tunnel in Ecclesiastes, in, in, in Koheleth. You know, you hear this banging reiteration, this mantra, issuing from the walls of the cave in which you find yourself life is meaningless utterly meaningless there is no meaning to it there is there is no sense to it and so you're being bombarded by this 37 times yeah it's quite but every now and again there is a spark of light now the problem is that when you're walking in the darkness you don't really catch those lights you miss them and there are there are several of them through the book Chapter 2, for example, let me just look up some of these. In chapter 2, verse uh, 24, there's nothing better for a, for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the man who pleases God, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now, those little things, there are several of them scattered along. I would say at least half a dozen of them. You find them in chapter 2 and 3. You find them in chapter 5, chapter 8, and chapter 9. Just little vignettes, just little verses, just little clues. But in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the depression, in the midst of the life is utterly meaningless content 37 times, often you miss those. You miss them. And so what happens is you need to get to the end of the book in order to shine the light back through the book. It's what I will, what I will term reading the book backwards. Mm. So, so I'm going to say in kind of this enigmatic way, the, the, the way to understand the book of Koheleth, you need to read it from the back, from the, from the perspective of chapter 12, reading backwards into the other chapters. It's so easy to take this book out of context. Uh, it, it feels like so many people like to take this book out of context. And, and as you mentioned before, in chapter 3, they love to take that and throw Christianity, throw God under the bus, as it were. Uh, it, it's really easy to do that in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? it? It is if you understand it as, you know, if you think about it as a theistic philosophy of life, which it is not. That's my point. Mm-hmm. It is not. It is the first 11 chapters is, is an atheistic viewpoint of life and that's not how a christian looks at it it rather looks uh, we would look at it in terms of understanding this is a non-godly worldview that leads to an inevitable godly worldview because if the ungodly worldview is dismissed if, if it turns up bankrupt then there's nowhere else to turn mm-hmm. and that's what you know that, that's deliberately that's where koheleth has taken us He's taken us to a point of utter despair by the time we've, we're into chapter 11. We're pretty much utter despair that life is just senseless. Meaninglessness, meaninglessness, everything is meaninglessness. That's the conclusion he comes to 
37 times. I mean, he's, it's kind of like beating you up over the head 37 times saying, you know, life doesn't make any sense. So it is only when life then, when our understanding of meaning is bankrupt, only then can he suggest a possible alternative. When you reach the bottom. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yes, exactly. So, so actually, you know, his, his conclusion at the very end of the book is a staggering conclusion by the time you get to the, almost the, the you know, the, the penultimate words of, of the entire book where he tells us, you know, that uh, if life is meaningless in all its secularity, in all its scientific concepts, in all its philosophical explorations, in all of its uh, practical understandings, in terms of just how we've experienced life itself, if, if li life is in fact totally bankrupt and there's no meaning, then what alternative are we left with? And he gives us that very alternative at the end of the book. So, so basically, he's asking the question, is there a way to live that transcends the meaninglessness of life? Let's explore, he seems to be saying, let's explore avenues of understanding of, of why people think they're here. The bumper sticker in the back of a car, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins kind of nonsense. Can we find meaning in nature? Can we find it in money? Can we find it in self-indulgence? Can we find it in prosperity? Can we find it in property? Can we find it in position? Can we find it in education? Can we find it in philosophy? Can we even, even can we find it in religion? And, and through all of those, he finds some uh, crowning frustration that invalidates them as solutions to the problem of living. So, for example, um, when, when you examine, when he opens the book, he basically, in the first two chapters, is asking the question, does life have meaning? Mm -hmm. And he talks about the meaningless cycles of life and the conclusion that it's all pointless. And then he moves from the experiential quest to the philosophical quest. He examines all the components of life in chapter three and the frustrations that, that arise from that search in chapters four and five, and, and then the questions remain unanswered in chapter six. And so basically what, what you have here in these 11 chapters, because he goes on then from, uh, from the, the philosophical quest uh, to the practical quest, what I would call practical wisdom. And he talks about despair and he talks about common sense. Can we reason our way through this? Uh, is, there, is there something that, that is so obvious to us that we're missing it? And, the, and again, he says, no, the riddle is still there. So the riddle remains. And then he talks about the ultimate frustration, the life which is death. And, and then, you know, he talks about time and chance make for an uncertain future. You know, the kind of ideas, if you go out one day and you turn right instead of left, your whole life can be changed because of something. Uh, when I was eight years old, my, my brother, who was 20 years old, left the house and uh, rode a bike to work and was, uh, was hit by a double-decker bus and was killed instantly. And I often wonder, you know, if he had left 30 seconds later or 30 seconds earlier, he, that bus would have missed him. And I think Koheleth kind of, you know, is, is, is using that kind of, you know, life is so uncertain that, you know, it's, it's precarious. Um, you know, if you sleep in one day, your entire life could be changed. And so, you know, there's no wonder then he's saying, you know, it's all foolishness. 
We have constant compassion in life, and that constant compassion is foolishness. I love the avenues that he gives. You know, he talks about um, uh, what is the point of, of being of human wisdom, and, and he says, you know, the wise man dies, just like the stupid man. They both finish in the grave. You know, yeah. and he says pleasure is um, it's self-serving. It has no value. And and what about fame? You know, so many people. You know, I. You and I have worked in Hollywood for a long time. <laughs> Fame is something that people crave, and yet people forget. You plan for the future, and it doesn't work out that way. You, you look to justice, uh, you know, the wheels, uh, the wheels of justice, and, and what do you find? But corruption and wickedness. Mm. Um, you look to, uh, you know, he talks about youth and age, and, you know, the old saying about youth is wasted on the young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, isn't that true? Absolutely. I mean, all the advantages of youth are squandered, you know, and, and, and greed, you know, people, you know, they, people wanting more and more and, and, and the more one gets, the less one is satisfied. And, uh, and, and so it goes on, you know, um, money doesn't satisfy the basic longings. There are people who are incredibly wealthy, who are, you know, who long for good health and they don't have it. Um, but there's always something more. So, so in these 11 chapters, you have him examining every possible computation on the meaning of life. You know, wisdom, indulgence, wealth, success, relationships, fame, philosophy, materialism, morality, entertainment, nature, religion, pleasure, family, career, science, status. I mean, all of that. And his conclusion? <laughs> it's all meaninglessness. Why does he wait so long to resolve the issue of meaning? Well, I, I think, you know, basically, humankind have tried to answer that question in so many different ways. And before he just throws his cap into the ring and says, well, here's another way, the one thing that I love about Koheleth, which I don't find in other um, searches for life's meaning, whether scientific or philosophical or religious, any of them, they tend to shoot for a, a solution from the get-go. They try to postulate a rationale. The beautiful thing about Koheleth is he doesn't do that. What he does, in fact, he examines all the other rationales and basically says, rubbish. Because his idea will only have meaning if the others don't have meaning. There are many people who suggest that all the philosophies of life and all the religions of life have, have value and, uh, and, and they're all right to some extent. Well, philosophically, that's absolutely rubbish. That's nonsense. <laughs> I mean, if they're all right, none of them are right. None of them are right. That's basically, you know, you can't, they can't all be right because they often contradict one another. They can't be all right, you know. So all these philosophies of the meaning of life can't be right. One sits back and one surrenders one's uh, mental facilities and simply says, hey, you know, well, there's, you know, you, you can do your thing and I can do my existentialist thing and, um, you know, uh, I, who am I to say that you're wrong? And, you know, and so, you know, we, ha we have to be tolerant of one another and anything goes. And what rubbish is that? I mean, that's total rubbish. And I think the thing that I love about Koheleth is basically he calls rubbish rubbish. He calls a spade a spade. I remember um, years ago when I was an undergraduate in uh, Queen's University in Belfast that um, uh, the Christian Union put on a, a happening on a Friday evening that attracted, oh my goodness, more students than any event 
in the life of the university. We called it a happening and it was an amazing thing. We just, uh, we used um, music, film, um, philosophy, philosophical statements, uh, Shakespearean plays, little quips of, of everything. The whole thing lasted about 50 minutes and, and we demonstrated time and again that life was futile, that love relationships ended up in bankruptcy, that that wealth ended up in bankruptcy, that all these things ended up in, in, in bankruptcy. And at the very end, in the last one minute, we took 50, well, 49 minutes basically to dismiss all the things that, that students look to for meaning. And in the last one minute, we simply said, we threw up on the screen, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. He is no longer here. He is risen. That was it. And, and I think in many ways it was a reflection. I don't think we did it intentionally at the time, but it was a reflection of the book of Koheleth. He examines all these ways and ends up in a place where, you know, it's kind of interesting that by the time he gets to chapter 10, let's say, he basically says, you know, if life is meaningless, then uh, hope for the best. <laughs> 11 basically says, make the best of life. Chapter 12 basically says the best is found in a certain thing that we'll come to in a moment. Hmm. So in other words, he, by the time he gets to chapter 11, what he's saying is, be happy, don't worry, you know. And I think, I think there's a song along, <laughs> along that, you know, be happy, don't worry. I think it's don't you know, worry, be and, happy. And that's but basically... That's Okay, yeah, but the essence of if life is bankrupt, you know, we can not do anything about it, then, hey, don't worry, be happy, you know. Um, <laughs> but then he introduces this final affirmation. He says, hope for the best, make the best of life, but let me tell you what the best is. The best is found in fearing God. So he begins chapter 12 with this beautiful way, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you say, there's no pleasure in them. And, and, and you know, chapter 12 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's just absolutely glorious. Um, and I'm looking at it just now. You know, he, he talks about uh, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In other words, before absolute futility sinks into your life, before the bankruptcy, before you recognize the complete bankruptcy of it all, remember your creator. So, I mean, you know, when all has been said and done, he says in chapter 12 and verse 13, all has been said and done. See, here's the conclusion to the matter, he says. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then with that idea, you know, if in fact there is God, if in fact that the meaning of life is centered in a relationship with God, then you can see those beautiful little lights along the way that we missed the first time around. The, the, you know, in chapter two that we've said, you know, if you want, it is God who gives joy. It is God who implants within the human heart a sense of an eternal existence in chapter 3, verse 11. 
It is good, therefore, to, to eat and drink and be joyful and to experience life in its fullness. Because basically the book has turned from the opening idea of nothing is important to an embrace at the end of the book which says everything is important. All the little things of life that if you read the book forward doesn't make any sense. But if you read those same things backwards they make complete sense. When you encourage someone to read this book do you tell them read the last chapter first and then read it through or read it through and then read the last chapter again and then read it? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, absolutely not. I mean, no, no, you know, I don't believe in, <laughs> I don't believe when you get a book, you should read the last page okay. before you read the story. That mitigates against the, the, the whole, the whole point of what the writer's trying to of do. Of course. He wants to take you on a journey of perplexity and frustration and bankruptcy. He wants to get you there before he reveals to you what the meaning of life really is. It's kind of like that play that we did or that, that, that happening that we did back in my university days. Right. The auditorium that we were in was packed. I mean, we couldn't get any more people into it. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, students in there, and, and they were sitting on the stairway outside. They couldn't even see what was going on, but they were just, I mean, it was an incredible, the, the whole student union was packed with this. I mean, we, we did great publicity, I must confess. We kept carrying uh, a coffin, a casket, through the <laughs> university campus the week before, you know, just giving out leaflets that the happening was going to happen, you know. Um, and the happening was scheduled to start at 7.57, and the student newspaper said, um, why 7.57? And our response was, why not 7.57? <laughs> so, so, I mean, it was just... Um, it, it was it was fascinating. The guy who was sitting in front of me in this in the auditorium, he must have gone through fifty cigarettes. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but he just in, in that fifty minutes, he was just smoking, smoking, smoking. I mean, he was so nervous, and that was the point. That's what we were trying to get. We were trying to take people on a journey of absolute despair. Mm. That's what Koheleth does: absolute despair. And even the little glimmers of light you miss because you're so overwhelmed by the despair. And, and so you would, be, you would cheat the reader if you, <laughs> if you went to chapter 12 first. That's not fair. <laughs> you, know, you have to get to chapter 12. But once you get to 12 and the light comes on, then the light from chapter 12 shines back through the tunnel of darkness and gives light to everything. And that's why I say when you read the book, when you're going through the book, forwards nothing is important because he keeps dismissing everything you know mm -hmm. wealth prosperity love um, fame everything he dismisses it all so you're going forward in absolute despair in darkness but when the light finally comes on at the end of the tunnel and you find it's not a train coming at you, you know. But that light then shines through the darkness, so that the, because nothing is important going forwards, when the light comes on at the end and shines back through the tunnel, then we can see that everything is important. That's the beauty of this book. 
as you go out into the world, into Africa, into Asia, into this, this exploding Christian growth that's happening, when do you uh, encourage people to read this? Wow. Um, I mean, I love this book. I absolutely adore this book. I mean, I, there's of all the literature that has ever been written on trying to solve or trying to give clues to the meaning of life, nothing comes close to touching this book in my mind. Absolutely nothing. Um, uh, I mean, there's a, there's an honesty about uh, Koheleth in the way that he deals with this. So, and recognizing that this is the quest, this is a question that humankind have been asking since the beginning of time. I, I, you know, I mean, I would be all for getting people to read this right from the get-go. Mm. But I think it's important to tie it in with, um, with the fuller revelation of the New Testament so that what you have is a, is a, is a balanced, um, you know, when, when Kohela says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. When he says, here's the conclusion to the matter, fear God, keep his commandments, for that's the whole duty of man. Jesus said something like that, you remember, when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be given to you as well. So basically, when we say the Koheleth, the way to understanding Koheleth is to read the book backwards from the perspective of chapter 12, that it turns everything on top of its head from uh, nothing being important to everything being important. The reason why everything is important is if you remember your creator, if you uh, fear God and obey his commandments. And Jesus says precisely the same thing. If, if, if you seek first the kingdom of God, because life, you know, life in general doesn't make any sense. I think we've got to confess that and admit mm. that. Life doesn't make sense. It does, just doesn't make any sense. And then we die. You know, and, and all, the, all the stupid philosophies and ideas that have been advanced since the beginning of time leave us cold for the most part because at the end of it all you die and that's it. But if in fact Koheleth is, is correct and, and for me, if there's such a thing as truth at all, then, then Koheleth is correct. Um, then what he is saying is precisely what Jesus said later. If seeking God's kingdom and righteousness comes first, then everything else falls into proper perspective. Basically, Koheleth, his search for meaning shows that empiricism, rationalism, pragmatism, any other isms, if you will, are not enough without another way of knowing, which takes us back to one of our previous podcasts, How Do We Know What We Know? Mm -hmm. And the only other way of knowing is revelation. And that revelation is remember your creator. Only this makes sense. Nothing else makes sense, only this. Remember your creator. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is what life is all about. Well, a perfect segue, because on our next podcast, we'll take a look at revelation. Yeah, that's kind of exciting the most misunderstood book in the Bible, I would suggest. Why is it that so many clergy don't want to preach from Revelation? Because it, it's kind of scary. And the irony is that the book of Revelation was written not to scare people. It was written to encourage people. And when you understand Revelation from that perspective, it is one of the most magnificent books in the Bible. We'll look at it next time.
And please send us your questions. Uh, we'll take time in an upcoming podcast to try and answer them. Uh, send us an email to podcast at thewordisout.com. Podcast at thewordisout.com. Or ask your questions directly on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.